You're listening to a classic business podcast as heard on Classic 1027. 1027. We have movement at long last from deep within the bowels of an incapacitated state that has yet to show it can unblock a constipated pipeline of reforms that will help bring South Africa's growth back to life. The president used his morning letter to trumpet the news that the laxatives are taking effect. Government has now gazetted ministerial determinations that will enable the development of more than 11,800 megawatts of additional power generation. And just to give a sense of the scale of that development, uh, we currently have in the region of around 30,000 megawatts of electricity available on the grid each day. So this is over a third of our, our current available capacity that will go out to tender. But is this a mere borborygmy or are we truly now on the road to real reforms. To find out, let's welcome uh, our panel today, Chris Yelland, energy analyst, consultant, electrical engineer, and uh, MD at EE Business Intelligence, and Alistair Campbell, MD of Vantage Greenex, a uh, debt fund manager with significant experience in funding renewable independent power projects. Chris, it's been a long road to this point, uh, so I think worthwhile just going uh, through the history of the reprogram and what saw it uh, crowd in over 200 billion rands worth of investment through bid windows one to four? Well, I think it started off uh, with the uh, 2010 IRP, that's the IRP 2010 to 2030, uh, which included uh, a significant amount of renewable energy. It also included a significant amount of nuclear, which never happened. Uh, but certainly the renewable energy did happen. Uh, and a program was started and it was successful and it delivered. And then it stopped because Eskom, as an off-taker, uh, refused to sign any further power purchase agreements. And then, since then, it's been somewhat constipated, uh, to use your turn of phrase, and we now have a laxative that is unlocking this constipation. So um, we now have the new IRP 2019. Uh, it came very late, uh, but finally it came in uh, November last year. And uh, this is uh, following now a ministerial determination uh, and uh, the next step, I guess, will be a, a request for proposals, uh, followed by hopefully financial closure and finally starting of construction. So uh, I think we're probably about two, two and a half to three years away uh, from uh, commissioning. Uh, so that's quite a long time uh, to deliver new electricity capacity onto the grid still. And uh, just to go back, Alistair, to that uh, stumbling block around uh, bid window four, ESCOM argued that renewables costed too much, which of course uh, is a fallacious argument. Um, what has seen the change of heart inside uh, government and, and indeed ESCOM, which I see will be the buyer here? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons. The, the first is that the cost of renewables is now significantly below that of competing technologies. You have wind and solar that are quite capable of coming in at between 50 and 60 cents a kilowatt hour. And by comparison, you have combined cycle gas turbine, one rand 10, new coal, Madupian Casilla, one rand 70, nuclear in excess of two rand. So the cheapest alternative today is renewables. And when the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining, you, um, you can complement it with combined cycle gas turbines. The, um, the change of heart has also come about primarily due to, to ESCOM's financial situation being constrained. You, they're not really in a position to go and raise any more money. Uh, they often talked about 200 billion rands of debt that has to be taken off their balance sheet. 
um, is a considerable amount. And, and in a company that has that kind of problem, there is limited capacity to go and raise more debt to build new the only remaining alternative is the private sector, and, and that's why these IPPs are being fast-tracked, because the government has literally run out of options to, to fund its new build. And uh, it's 6,800 megawatts of uh, onshore wind and solar uh, photovoltaic generators, so the, the substantial portion of this is into renewables, 1,500 of, of new coal and 513 megs of, of energy storage as well in this. Uh, but I want to shift over to... Um, the the buyer here, because ESCOM has been the buyer in the past, Alice, so with fun, uh, funding secured through multi-year price determinations, as they're known, and there has been some debate, however, because of the financial situation that you just outlined that ESCOM finds itself in, as to whether or not it should continue to play the single, single buyer role in light of this. That said, though, the Gazette states that ESCOM must be the buyer. Uh, what does that mean for the bankability of these uh, bids under Window 5? Well, it makes it pretty difficult to, to lend to these without the National Treasury standing behind the payment obligations of ESCOM. The company is technically insolvent, and so any bank going to its credit committee will, will struggle to get any buy-in for as long as the state of, of technical insolvency or actual insolvency ends. And so National Treasury has to stand behind the payment obligations. Having said that, Andre Dereta has come uh, come to, to the public and announced more, on more than one occasion that he is fully supportive of the unbundling of ESCOM and the creation of the generation, transmission and distribution entities. And when that happens, the single buyer office can very easily be structured outside of ESCOM. If you do that, uh, it will make it a lot easier to, to ring fence and effectively escrow or uh, isolate the IPP revenues from ESCOM, and in doing that uh, would pave the way for the removal of the National Treasury guarantees standing behind payment obligations of ESCOM. Would those payment guarantees be necessary just as a bridging guarantee until we get to that point? Because that unbundling process that you refer to is still some time away. Look, as far as we're concerned as a lender, I think they absolutely have to stay in place. Um, you know, who, who in their right mind would go and give money to a project that is going to rely on an insolvent buyer of the product coming out of it. Um, and, and that's the reality that we're having to, to handle right now. Uh, the fund that I manage uh, has pension and provident fund money invested, or we invested on their behalf, and, and it would be irresponsible of us to go and lend to a project that is selling to an insolvent buyer. So and as long as those, that state of affairs remains, it's going to be very difficult to fund projects without a Treasury guarantee standing behind ESCOM's payment obligations. Chris, how do you see the guarantee situation playing out? You know, it's really simple, as Alistair explained. Uh, if my daughter, who hasn't got a job, wants to buy a car and goes to a bank to borrow money, uh, the first thing the bank says is, uh, you know, who's going to guarantee the payments monthly and daddy has to step in. In this case, the shareholder, uh, who is Eskimo's big daddy, you might say, uh, has to step in and stand surety uh, for this debt. Uh, that's the way it works. Of course, uh, now uh, the pressure is really on Eskom uh, to restructure. Uh, and to carve out this independent transmission company out of ESCOM, you've got to understand that ESCOM comprises three businesses, generation, transmission, and distribution. 
Two of them are dead businesses. Generation is heavily indebted uh, and, uh, and, and, and cannot get itself out of this debt situation easily. Uh, distribution is also a pretty dead business because its customers can't pay. Municipalities account for more than 50% of Eskom's business, and many of them are, are not paying. Uh, the, but transmission is a good business. Uh, it, it has low, uh, um, uh, it, it employs low capital, it uses low staff, uh, and, it, and it's a good business. It's performing technically well at the moment. Best thing to do is carve it out and keep generation out of the loop. Uh, and and, and, and um, the transmission business will certainly then, I believe, uh, be in a position uh, to handle transactions between buyers and sellers. So therefore, even the, w the wording in the Gazette, even though it states that ESCOM must be the buyer, it does leave the window open, no pun intended, for that buyer to be the independent system uh, operator here. Chris? I, I see it uh, over time that the transmission entity effectively becomes a platform uh, for uh, enabling transactions uh, between creditworthy customers uh, and generators of electricity, some of whom could be uh, uh, former ESCOM generators, uh, many of them could be IPPs, some of them could be uh, public-private partnerships, new generators, and literally thousands of them uh, could be uh, uh, generators uh, embedded in customers' premises. In other words, a completely new generation sector comprising a diversified uh, sector uh, of literally uh, several thousand uh, generators uh, who transact with creditworthy customers via a platform, a trading platform, a market, uh, and, and an independent grid operator who, uh, to, who maintains the grid. And then uh, one might be able to, if you've got uh, a lodge, for example, I was just in the Kruger, and you generate your own power on significant uh, portions of uh, hectareage. It was uh, the mercury topping 40 degrees over the last few days. You could then sell the surplus um, back into the grid and help ease some of the electricity constraints that we currently find. Um, Alistair, yeah, just think it. Yeah. Yeah, can, can I just say, just yeah. think in terms uh, of Uber. Uber is a platform which facilitates transactions between uh, customers uh, and, and, and taxi drivers. It doesn't own the taxi driver, it doesn't own the assets uh, that the taxi driver owns, uh, but it uh, facilitates transactions and takes a transaction fee on every single one of many, many, many millions of transactions that take place. So I, I see this as the future uh, of, 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 mm. of the utility. Mm. The utility needs to become a platform to enable trading. Who funds the wheeling of that power, that, uh, that wind farm or that solar power project um, onto the grid? Uh, how, how does that work? Uh, do you want to take that, Alistair, or shall I? Uh, carry on, Chris. Yeah, look, um, essentially a wheeling is a use of the transmission grid. Uh, so uh, whoever owns the transmission grid charges a fee for wheeling power from one point in the grid to another point. Uh, of course, there are costs involved in wheeling. For example, there are losses across the grid, uh, and, and, and uh, that has to be paid for. Uh, there's the use of the grid, and, and the, uh, which is a, the use of a capital uh, asset. So uh, uh, really, it is the transmission grid operator and owner uh, that I think would charge a wheeling fee. And that would uh, be a, uh, a set fee or a particular percentage of your, your, your power cost at the end of the day. Alistair, uh, you've got vast experience in relation to project finance and, and funding structures for these kinds of projects. Uh, are you uh, 
uh, given sufficient confidence through this process and the way it's been handled this time round that we're going to see as much interest as we did through bid windows one to four because a lot of credibility was seriously damaged when ESCOM decided or refused um, to sign from bid window four and the issue is obviously around uh, around guarantees but also around credibility and whether or not the goalposts are going to shift yet again. Are you um, confident enough in the process? I think the renewables developer market is, is eternally optimistic and uh, there's no shortage of interest in, in bid window five. You've got a number of developers in this country who are gearing up and ready to submit bids when, when the minister announces it. He's gazetted the um, number and <clears throat> just remains for Minister Montashi to announce when the bid window five will open. The emergency window is, is looks primarily as if it's, it caters to fuel technologies like gas or, or LNG or, or diesel. Um, and so the renewables developers will, will wait until bid window five. This windows are anything to go by. It'll be multiple, multiple many times oversubscribed. I think there's been 6,000 megawatts procured and each time it's been four times oversubscribed. Obviously, renewables now is is the cheapest alternative and so the concerns that people had about renewables being an expensive um, option which which ultimately might result in tariff renegotiation uh, has now gone it, it is the cheapest option it will keep our average or it will ensure that the average electricity tariff increase goes up at a much slower rate than if we were to procure new mm -hmm. and, and uh, dirtier um, fossil fuel generation so there's a lot of optimism, there's a lot of um, interest, and certainly uh, people are ready. The, the, the bids are already getting put, put together and people getting their ducks in a row. Is there anything, Chris, uh, to, to stop ESCOM from uh, bidding itself? Uh, it's said and its stated intent is to also become a player in the renewable uh, space, even though it is going to be the buyer at the end of the day. Look, definitely not in terms of this current ministerial determination, uh, if the uh, determination and the words of the determination are anything to go by, which states very clearly uh, that, uh, that, that uh, Eskom will procure from IPPs, independent power producers. That is very clear. Uh, some interesting things that I find about this um, uh, ministerial determination is the, the 1,500 megawatt allocation to new coal. Uh, I doubt whether this is ever going to happen. We, we, you know, there have been two uh, new coal IPPs that were announced, I think, about three and three years ago, uh, that have never reached financial closure to this day, simply because the banks will not fund new coal uh, of this kind. So, uh, whilst something may be in the uh, ministerial determination, it may even be in the IRP. It certainly may never happen. I mean. New nuclear was in the IRP 2010 and it never mm. happened. Mm. So because new coal is in the IRP 2019 doesn't mean to say it's going to happen uh, if, the, if nobody's prepared to fund it. And we saw in uh, Kenya maybe. recently, uh, Alistair, a coal-fired power station unable to secure funding uh, for that very reason as well. The fact that uh, banks are just shying away from, from the risk attached to that. Um, you just wanted to add to that, Alistair? Yeah, sure. I mean, it... it, it it is very surprising that, that the minister hasn't updated his IRP. There, there is reference to 2,500 megawatts of import hydro from the DRC. That project is never going to take place. 
the 1500 megawatts of coal, it is an environmentally redundant and unbankable technology now. You won't find a new coal-fired power plant getting built anywhere in the world um, without carbon capture storage. Um, and, and as a result, you, you, are, you have lobby groups and NGOs that are objecting to, to any new coal build. So if you look at the trucks of coal that were dumped outside ESCOM's um, gate when they raised funding from the World Bank to fund Madupi and Kasile, if you multiply that um, in, in terms of the resistance that will come to commercial banks, international banks, anybody looking to lend to those projects, and they're non-starters. So Minister Montashi needs to recognize this reality, and he needs to remove coal, and he needs to remove the expensive import hydro um, and, and replace them with the bankable and least cost options. And just uh, lastly, Chris, so um, the, the next steps from here, we await the announcement of that bid window five date. Uh, there was a webinar, I think, last week that I was uh, watching in which the head of the IPP office said that that should be sometime in January. I is that correct? That's what we hear. And um, uh, so we just have to wait and see. Uh, I mean, we know that these announcements have a history of being delayed. Uh, but we know that it's pretty urgent <laughs> and, and there's a lot of pressure uh, because of, 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 of the inability of ESCOM to meet demand. Uh, but, you know, all of this uh, is for, procure, uh, for new generation capacity that's going to come on stream uh, in, in three to four years time. The question is, what are we going to do between now and then? Uh, and, now, and there we've got to look uh, to different options, uh, which really uh, there's only one option, and that is to allow customers to become part of the solution mm. through self-generation uh, by people like Sassel, uh, mining companies, factories, plants, farms, even domestic installations, commercial buildings, parking lots. All of these can deliver generation capacity onto the grid in the next six months. So that's where we've got to look to uh, for the immediate future. And uh, that is in terms of the, the regulations that extend exemptions extend to, uh, for, for generators up to 20 megawatts, uh, Chris. Uh, currently that's set well, far at too the low. moment up to 10 megawatts, above 1 megawatt, uh, between 1 megawatt and 10 megawatt you need a license. In fact, anywhere above 1 megawatt you need a license. This is inhibiting the rollout of industrial scale and mining and um, uh, uh, self-generation. So I, I do believe that if government is serious about bringing on new capacity in the short term, it's going to have to relax these regulations. Uh, and in fact, it's going to have to incentivize and encourage self-generation because that is the only option uh, you know, in the short term. Now, just uh, as we wrap up, Alistair, given that uh, we now have a, a five to eight year plan around uh, renewable IPPs, there's obviously going to be a lot of focus on how to leverage this local content and all those conversations. The head of the IPP office was talking about that as well. What are some of the lessons that we can take forward from the previous bid windows that will stand us in good stead to fully leverage the opportunity in this new build program? Yeah, look, there's, there is an opportunity coming out of both COVID and our sovereign downgrade to, to create local industries. The, the, the IPP office is putting pressure on bidders to increase their local content, local ownership requirements or, or levels in these projects. And it's an ideal opportunity to facilitate the re-establishment of, of manufacturing um, and local supply 
um, for the sector. In order for that to happen, there does, however, need to be a procurement every year. And it sustains the business and allows um, anyone who sets up a factory to carry on. This two or three year hiatus that we have had between bid window four being procured and, and this up and coming bid window five has resulted in two locally set up um, renewable energy sector manufacturers going bust. And that's unforgivable. You know, in a country that's trying to stimulate its economy, we should be doing whatever we can to encourage and, and get these local businesses to get set up and to sustain them uh, through the creation of jobs and, and new, new projects to, to build equipment for. Uh, if I may add to that, Michael, uh, if you look at the IRP 2019, you'll see as a year and a two-year gap in the procurement process of uh, solar PV. Yeah. Again, this is not the way it should be done. There should be procurements every year to ensure a continuous pipeline to local manufacturers. The stop-start process that we saw in, in the previous uh, uh, rounds uh, and, and, and now this uh, in, in the 2019 uh, IRP, we also see these uh, gaps in the procurement process. These can easily just be smoothed out so that there's procurement every year. And this is essential for local manufacturing if you want to keep it sustainable. And uh, I, I do know that uh, the, the big players uh, come in uh, and try and um, undercut a lot of our, our local um, uh, consortia when it comes to these bids. Uh, do you think there needs to be a preferential weighting given to, to local consortia in exchange for providing this line of sight uh, and this environment in which we have policy certainty, much like you see with the automotive industry development program, for example, Chris? Yeah, look, I, I do believe there is a case, uh, you know, for protecting local industry uh, as a startup measure. But it must not be seen as an ongoing and a continuous measure that just encourages inefficient, uncompetitive uh, local manufacture. But there is certainly a, a business case to protect local industry in the initial phases uh, to give it a kickstart. Uh, but as I say, I, I, I believe in, in, in uh, trade and competitiveness and that South African local manufacturers should be not only looking at the South African market, but the global market. And if, they, if they're not competitive because of protection, they will mm. never make it on the international market. Mm. I mean, Alice, there are always forces outside of our control. You just look at COVID, for example, and the fact that we're seeing frozen cut uh, potato chips being dumped in our market because there's an oversupply in Europe because of uh, restaurants being closed. And our farmers don't get any support. And they're now asking for a little bit of support from government. Do you think a similar type of approach um, um, is, is necessary when we look at the ability to stimulate a local manufacturing industry allied to renewable energy? I think to Chris's point, the, you, know, you, you don't want to encourage inefficiencies, but you do need to, to lay the platform that allows local businesses to, to set up, get set up and, and, to, and to succeed. And in order to do that, there just has to be a regular and predictable um, procurement process being run, um, and the rest will, will sort itself out. You've got people bidding into a process that um, is, is a RAND-based process. You, you have a RAND uh, revenue stream in the form of the sale of it or electricity sales, and for that you actually need to, to have equipment that is priced in RANDs. And so the process itself doesn't lend itself to to the importation of substantial amounts of equipment. Um, and so that protection is there anyway because mm. of the RAND revenue stream. 
It's just a question of ensuring that when I go and set up a business in, for example, a Koha development zone, manufacturing um, wind towers, that at least there'll be a predictable revenue stream coming from that. And in order for that to happen, they have to keep um, running renewable rounds where this guy can continue manufacturing towers. As it stands, the, the only tower manufacturer in this country has gone bust because no, no. of the three-year hi hiatus that has happened. And, and it's, it's entirely of the government's own making. Mm -hmm. And they should learn from that mistake no and, one, and ensure yeah. there's a predictable process no one would set up a factory knowing that uh, you're only going to be in production for one or two years and then have a year gap where you're not doing anything and then ramp up production again chris just lastly we've got a minute to go the ipp office uh karen breitenbach was uh, widely lauded for the work that she did there has subsequently left there's a new head of the ipp office is there confidence uh, in this office to run a fair and transparent process yeah look they're operating under huge pressure at the moment time pressure uh, and that sometimes is a, is a weakness because they uh, uh, have to rush things through, uh, maybe use uh, previous rounds uh, instead of uh, considering. Uh, in other words, they, they, they tend to be backward looking instead of forward looking uh, as a result of time pressure. Uh, but I think the new uh, CEO of, 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 of the IPP office, Bernard Mahora, is highly respected. He's a very technical man uh, and, and, and he's considered, um, he's highly considered in the industry. Um, and, and, and remember, it's not just a one man operation, it's a, it's a huge team. Uh, but I do think, uh, yeah, I do think the IPP office uh, has learned lessons from the previous rounds. Uh, and I hope they have enough time to put those lessons into practice for the future rounds and become more forward looking. Well, there we go. We have to leave it there. And uh, certainly some encouraging signs uh, that it is more than just a borborygmy. And we are finally seeing uh, the reform program becoming unblocked, unconstipated, uh, and hopefully we can see uh, the fruits of that in the years to come. That was uh, Alistair Campbell, MD of Vantage GreenX, who was joined by uh, well-known energy expert Chris Yellen, talking about the gazetting of that 11,800 megawatts of new power.